Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Peg O'Connor, a professor of philosophy. Dr. Peg O'Connor has written a new book, Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. In the book, Dr. Peg O'Connor addresses an audience much like herself, those in recovery who have struggled with this Christian-centric God at the heart of Alcoholics Anonymous. She brings our attention to a little-known fact, the term higher power, a touchstone in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, was coined by William James, who was a philosopher, psychologist, and intellectual giant in the early 20th century. By acting as our personal field guide through the world of William James, Peg shows that higher power, as James conceived of it, is far more expansive than we might imagine. The book, which combines Peg's deep personal wisdom with James's adventurous intellect, has the power to transform the way we live. I believe you are going to enjoy this interview as we discuss the higher power concept, we dispel the concept of the Christian-centric God at the heart of AA, we talk about Alcoholics Anonymous, we talk about many different paths to recovery, We talk about different strategies and changing your relationship to substances. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcoming to the podcast, Dr. Peg O'Connor. Thank you so much for being on The Intentional Clinician today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Paul. I really look forward to the opportunity to speak with you. Yes, when I, uh, I'm very excited myself as I received the email about your new book, Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering, I was immediately intrigued by the leading uh, paragraph here uh, where you're talking about that the audience of the book are uh, possibly people in recovery or who are contemplating recovery who have struggled with the Christian-centric God at the heart of Alcoholics Anonymous and kind of how that all came to light. So I think I'm going to let you kind of take it away because you've obviously written a whole book about this, but I'd love to know a little bit about that before I get into your story. But can you can you let us know a little bit about um, what what this sort of people that go to AA, they talk about God a lot, but then other people that go to AA, they talk about a higher power. And I wonder if you could just help educate us about that. Oh, happy to do so. So that term higher power is one that appears in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that higher power is oftentimes identified with God as we understood him. So when you read the steps, you'll see that expression, and it's oftentimes in italics. And it's interesting that that term higher power was not coined by Bill Wilson nor by Dr. Bob. It actually has an older origin. It came from American philosopher and psychologist William James, who lived between 1842 and 1910. And a wonderful book that he wrote, The Varieties of Religious Experience, that Bill Wilson read soon after he had his great conversion experience in the Charles B. Towns Hospital in New York in 1934. And James uses that term higher power or higher powers in the plural, or sometimes he'll talk about a higher and friendly power. And he had a very inclusive, expansive notion of what might be included in that. And this book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, was originally delivered as a set of lectures at the University of Edinburgh back in 1902. And James knew his audience. James knew that he was talking to very highly educated, 
mostly Christian men and women. And so in talking about higher power, he would say things like higher power or higher powers, what we Christians call God, but that also includes things like ideals such as truth or beauty. It includes enthusiasm for humanity. Something more is another term that he uses. He said patriotism can function that way. A better self, that each of us has a better self that can be a higher and greater power that we can harness to make our lives better. And sometimes he says it's moral principles. So, you know, say a secular humanist who has a very good moral framework that isn't resting on sort of God as the ultimate buck stopper, that those can be higher and friendly powers that can help individuals to make radical changes or transformations in their lives. So in this book, Higher and Friendly Powers, I wanted to rehabilitate and reanimate that concept and return it to its wonderfully inclusive and expansive sense, because my fear was that many people who perhaps go to AA for the first time and they don't share that same kind of Christian background or the the different kinds of denominations and faiths that comprise Christianity, that they might feel like they don't belong there. And for me, it was important to make that notion inviting and accessible to anyone who's struggling, regardless of what faith tradition they may come from, or if they hadn't come from any faith tradition at all. Well, I think that is a very worthwhile cause because anecdotally, uh, in the clinician world, uh, we hear stories all the time that of people that don't want to go to AA because they got turned off. Maybe they went to a meeting that <clears throat> was really church and God, Christian God centric, and they felt that they didn't fit in. And some of the quote old timers um, or the war story veterans of the AA group would kind of kind of come in a little too hard on them and say, you know, you, 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 to meet this step, you really need to give your life up for the Christian God. You know, you need to, you need to accept that Christian God. And I've heard that many times where other, obviously there's other AA groups that actually go by the secular humanist or kind of put in their, uh, their description that they are open to all religions, but there is a quite a large sect that it's kind of been fused together. And I think that's cultural depending on your region in the U S um, that might happen. And I do think that it gets confusing for people that are entering recovery um, because a lot of hospital systems and uh, inten- in, even intensive outpatients will use AA as an adjunct support group. And then depending on the meeting they pick, the meeting may be more inclusive or actually more exclusive. And that can really, I think, for especially young people, that could taint their um, experience um, I worked with a lot of young people struggling with substance use and they in their teens and they were supposed to go to AA for probation and they could not have been more upset about that. And in fact, I felt that it almost kind of increased their rebellion. So we worked on kind of a bit different stuff with the youth. Um, so those are just some comments I have about that. So I think it's a worthwhile thing. Anything you want to kind of say about that? Well, I, I totally agree with you. And and I was one of those people. I tried going to AA when I was in college and I had been raised as a Catholic, went to 13 years of Catholic school. And then I, you know, went into my first AA meeting 
And that language immediately turned me off because I felt like I was right back in a Catholic school setting where the the engine oil of Catholicism is shame and guilt. And so I felt like I, I brought all that baggage in there with me and I was too busy trying to carry that baggage around rather than think about why was I in there and what kind of help might I get? And the other thing that was hard for me with, with AA, particularly as a young person, and I still struggle with it as an older person, and I'm someone who has been in and out of AA. I have a kind of uneasy relationship with the program. I have profound respect for the program, and I'm so grateful it exists. It has helped millions of people. And I also worry that, as you said, it, it is a dominant model in many of the inpatient treatment programs. So there's always been a very interesting relationship between Alcoholics Anonymous, which is not a treatment program, and the 12-step model that is used in the vast majority of in and outpatient treatment centers, where then attendance at AA meetings is, as you say, it's, it's an adjunct, it's an, it's an add-on, it's, it's something that is expected. And the other part I had a problem with is with how it works, you know, which is oftentimes read at the beginning of a meeting, you know, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And it goes on to talk about those of us who don't seem to do well in AA, that it's our fault because we're not being honest enough. And for me, I felt this fundamental tension of, but I don't believe in that kind of God and yet I'm supposed to believe in that kind of God in order to do the steps. So I felt by staying in AA, I was being kind of, my honesty was being counted as a kind of dishonesty and it could be written off as, well, I just wasn't trying hard enough. I wasn't working the steps hard enough that I didn't want it enough. And, you know, I was a 19 year old, totally messed up college student who didn't know which way was up. And so for me, not wanting to be an AA for a good long time meant that somehow I was failing because, you know, if this is how it works and this is how the program works and I'm already not even able to get to step two because I've tripped on step one, then gosh, the problem has to be with me. And that's always really bothered me. So in some ways, this book I've written is an itch that I've been waiting to scratch for, for nearly 40 years. Oh my gosh, I hate to say that out loud, but it's been something that I've, I've carried with me about that notion of God. And I'm not dishonest by saying, I don't believe in that kind of God, but that doesn't mean I don't believe in something else as higher powers. Yes. I think that kind of nuance is important, especially in recovery, because everyone who's been in recovery or a substance use counselor who isn't really trauma-informed or that educated in certain ways, they can say honestly as their experience, this is the way it works. This is the things you need to do. This is what the big book says. And we know that this works. And of course it can work, but mm -hmm. everyone has to find their own motivations and reasons to do it. And if we kind of lock people into, the, the tighter we lock people into, you must do this, there usually is a, a reaction in the nervous system or the body of feeling trapped or meets with our personal story. And it doesn't feel like we are the ones experimenting with life and figuring it out for ourselves. Instead of it being a guidebook, it's like a like an instruction manual. Like this is the only way to get sober. And I think that is where 
it kind of goes awry at some of the meetings or some of the ways people talk about what is overall a very good idea and a very good uh, outline um, for 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 helping people. So, yeah, I, I'm curious. So you kind of explained a little bit about why you wrote the book, but perhaps just to give the listeners an idea of your background, I, I did read your bio um, about you've extensive experience in uh, writing different books and and teaching and and philosophy and all of that. But perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your personal story um, leading up to this point. I started drinking young. Um, I was just about to enter my first year of high school and I started drinking. And within about a year, a year for sure, it had taken off or suddenly I was drinking in ways that my friends weren't. You know, that I was the blackout drinker and I was drinking hard and I was drinking heavily. And I felt great shame for the ways I was drinking. It was a way in which I felt so different from my friends. And I knew that I was already drinking my way out of friendships, you know, sophomore, junior year in high school. So there was great shame to the way I was drinking. And there was also great shame. Um, so this is in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when I was coming to see that, ooh, wait a minute, I don't like boys. I think I like girls. Oh my gosh, am I a homosexual? And, you know, in a Catholic school context, that is exactly what you don't want to be. So I felt like as, as a young person, I was just steeped in shame that everything, every fiber of my being bore the stain of some kind of shame. And that's utterly debilitating. And so drinking was meant both to be my refuge, but it was also my torment. You know, I was trying to strike an impossible balance where I could maybe feel normal and that I fit in with, with my friends. But, you know, that sweet spot of having a nice buzz and being okay and funny and having a good time and suddenly becoming maudlin, you know, I don't think 14 and 15 year olds are supposed to be maudlin, but I was, um, just made me drink more. So, you know, alcohol aided and abetted the shame that I had. And that shame was the accelerant on my drinking. And so, you know, I almost got kicked out of school, uh, because I was at a school dance before I went into a blackout. The last thing I remember to saying to one of the nuns who was chaperoning and your clothes are ugly too. Always important to insult the teacher who's a nun about their habits. Um, doesn't go over very well. And um, I would have been expelled, except the headmaster and my dad had been uh, grammar school and high school classmates. So I kind of got a free pass in some ways. And I, I didn't have any terrible consequences. And, you know, when I got to college, I would drink and I would try to quit. I'd quit successfully during uh, a sports season. But then come the end of the season party, I'd be back off and running. And as a sophomore in college, I almost drank myself to death. I had both mono and chicken pox. And the doctor said, do not drink, do not drink. And I said, okay, I won't drink. And of course I drank. And I could have ruptured my spleen. And I darn near did. And again, I would try to quit and I would quit. And then I would start up again. It's like Mark Twain said about smoking, you know. Oh, it's really easy to quit. I've done it thousands of times. And so I could quit and I would lie to myself. You know, there's a certain kind of self-deception about, well, I don't have a problem because I can quit. 
But what I didn't look at was the kind of corollary of that. But if I keep having to quit, I have a problem. And so I got through college. I loved college, but I feel like I wasted some of my time because I was drunk a lot, but I was also a worker bee. And that's when I fell in love with philosophy. And I think philosophy actually gave me some important concepts to think about what was going to be the meaning of my life and what was my moral character? What were my moral principles? Was I living the kind of life that I thought a good person would live? And the answers were a resounding, you know, hell no. Um, and so I graduated college. I have absolutely no plans. And I had a horrific car accident. And I landed in the hospital with a severe concussion and some broken bones and massive muscle trauma. And I was in the hospital bed and the nurse came to offer me pain medications. And so this was in 1987. And I remember having the distinct thought, Betty Ford, here I come. I knew if I started taking prescription painkillers, I knew what I had done with drinking. And I had had loved cocaine, but it gave me debilitating headaches. So I didn't do too much of that, but it's a good thing I didn't. But I thought, oh my gosh, if I start taking painkillers, I'm going to feel a nice veil come down between me and the world. And I will want to hide behind that veil of, of chemical substances. And I declined and I got out of the hospital and, you know, I realized I hadn't had a drink for a while. And now I understand that was probably a function of the severe concussion I had. You know, now we know more about how concussions affect cognitive and emotional affect and all that. And I felt emotionally flatlined. I didn't even care enough to drink. And so at that point I made a decision. Well, let me see how long I can go. You know, in the past I'd gone a month, sometimes two months. Let me see how long I can go. I'm going to treat it as an experiment because it's a very live hypothesis that I could drink again. I'm going to try to enliven the hypothesis that I don't drink again. And so I like to say that that um, experiment is still going on. It's 35 years in my experiments, and I'm acutely aware that I could make different decisions, but I choose not to. And so I am someone who will now say I'm a grateful alcoholic, not just because I'm grateful for my sobriety, but I'm actually grateful for the condition that I that I live with because I think it has made me become a better person. It makes me, I think, a better teacher. I think it has helped me to cultivate more of a sense of empathy for the struggling of others, to, to look for the, the students, perhaps, who fall between the cracks, who have the happy facade, but once you peek behind it a little bit, you see that there's a lot more going on there. And so I'm grateful for this. I call it a condition. I don't call it a disease. You know, I'll call it uh, my addiction. And I'm happy for it. And it turns out it's something that I wouldn't change. And I have some regrets about the things I've done, but I've also learned how to move on from regret and not live with regrets. And I think that's a gift of long-term sobriety. Yes, thank you so much for sharing your personal story. I do find that um, myself, and I know many listeners do really love that because it's inspiring to see how someone does something and in your in your way, you gathered information. You had you know done things, but this experiment that you ran, where I can drink again, but I'm just going to see how long I can go. I think sounds like such a great recipe. Um, so interesting because, as far as I understand, in AA, there's a point in AA. I, is this is this a step where you you just need to be sober? Isn't there isn't that a step where you like say I have no control over this addiction and I have to try to get my chips by 
getting 30 days, 90 days. Is that is that part of AA? Well, I don't think it's part of it. I mean, the first step is that we admit that we're powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. And I think that many of us can recognize that, right? So, I mean, I was passed out behind the Demolis grocery store, or, you know, my friends were hiding me in the bathtub when the police were coming to, to raid a party. I was powerless. Once I got going, I was going. My life was unmanageable. But then the question becomes, what's the scope of that powerlessness? So I am someone who is more than happy to say I'm powerless over a whole bunch of stuff. Turns out I can't do my taxes on my own. I need an accountant. I can't lift a 300-pound box by myself, but I need someone else or, you know, preferably I need a dolly or something like that. And I think one of the struggles in AA, though, is that that scope of that powerless goes powerlessness goes beyond your particular substance or behavior to be about everything in your life. And I'm not powerless over everything in my life. All kinds of things I am, and I'm willing to acknowledge those, but I always have some power in some control. And so this is where I think a lot of people struggle with saying, I'm powerless over alcohol, but I don't want to say I'm powerless over my whole life. And I don't want to turn my will over. And this is where the God language comes back in. I don't want to turn my life over to some other being, a providential being that has a will and a plan for me. And my job is in some ways to just sit down and shut up and go along and follow the plan that this God has for me. But if you believe that I'm truly powerless over everything, there's great comfort in believing that there is a being that has all the power that can fix things for you. But if you don't believe that, like I don't believe that, I want to hold on to some agency and I want to take responsibility. I want to be the one to make change. I want to keep myself central in my recovery because I was central in my addiction. Does that make any sense? Made some sense in my head, yes. but I'm not sure. It yes, makes absolutely. Sense. Um, I do think this is where um, traditional theology and and philosophical concepts clash, and I think the way we interpret them <clears throat> clashes. And and often the most simple way to say, and I I don't know if I believe people even when they say this is that I'm just listening to God's voice. I'm following God's plan, and you need to do that too. You need to stop your ego. And I see the value in, in like our ego that is like, I can drink forever and I'm in denial. I can do whatever I want. I see the value in, you know, kind of being able to meet and understand that your ego or some part of you really needs to drink or really needs relief, which I was going to go into the trauma part of it, which we may go into later, but just on this concept stay here. I see the value in that, but I don't think you can force someone <laughs> to make, uh, to go, okay, yes, you're right. Uh, my ego is, con- you know, I'm driving myself to drink. Uh, I need to give up my entire life plan and give it to God. I think that is, is <laughs> as a step or part of the steps is counterproductive because we have to want to do that on our own. We have to wrestle with that. And so and and not and the extremity of giving it up is also i think very uh, scary for people and also not really practical um i it, as a 
clinician who's really studied trauma and a sort of different how traumas can like manifest in different narratives in your mind and different memories in your mind, there are always parts of us which create ambivalence. One part of us wants to be happy. The other part of us wants to sabotage the happiness because it's scary and might go away. Or one part of us uh, wants to be sober, but the other part of us is like, yeah, but I'm really stressed out. And what am I going to do on Wednesday night when I'm so stressed and I can't relax and I can't sleep? I might need a drink. I might need something, right? Um, and so there's this, there's comp- competition within us. And I think, I think as a clinician, I try to find, help people find the middle area and start making small agreements with themselves that satisfy both sides at, at, at on a path, right? And but it's their own path. Um, and there's so many other clinical concepts, but, but philosophically, I think it's very dangerous and difficult <laughs> to enforce giving up one's will completely. Um, I don't, I just don't think it's honest. And I think in some ways it can be called spiritual bypassing because the people that supposedly do it, I find have usually massive egos. They've just translated the drinking for I'm in touch with God all the time. And I know what God's saying and I know what God wants for you. Like that kind of thing. I don't know if I went off too off the rails there, but no, I don't think so. And so William James had this wonderful expression. So in 1902, he talks about the habitual center of a person's energy. So 1902, habitual center of a person's energy. So it sounds kind of new agey, wavy gravy. But what he means by that is that each of us has animating concerns or principles or activities or practices that are so central to our identity that I, I would say they're the axis around which other activities turn and an axis is held in place by those activities that surround it. And he's very clear that you cannot change the habitual center of someone else's energy. You can't do it. You can try, but you cannot do it. So using that concept and putting it in conversation with addiction studies, I think people who are in the worst throes of addictions that they're using behaviors and those substances, those behaviors become their habitual center of personal energy, right? They kind of, that's what the person focuses the most on. And as much as our loved ones want to change that for us, no one else can change that for us. We have to do it ourselves. And what James says is you have to have a willingness to change. There's a vast chasm between wishing something were different, like, oh, I I wish I were six feet tall. I wish I had a billion dollars. I wish I could get that promotion and being willing. Wishing can spin all around and never engage with any kind of action. But if you wish so hard and you think your wishes should be made true by someone else, or they just kind of magically happen, you're going to just stockpile the resentments. But when you're willing You take action to begin to meet those things that you want. And wishing that you were sober isn't going to get you anywhere else. Wishing someone else was sober isn't going to get them or you anywhere else. Being willing to start to make some changes. So you said, you know, start to make some agreements with yourself. Start to keep some promises to yourself. Willingness is always attached to action. So where there's no action, there's actually no willingness. And it makes us be, so, you know, the title of your podcast, The Intentional Clinician, 
At some point, each of us needs to become very intentional about looking at the changes we're trying to make and why. We have to become intentional, I would say, in beginning to cultivate a positive ideal or a positive vision or to have positive aspirations that you'd want to be able to meet. And so, you know, when you bring up, you know, how trauma infuses and enforces all of this, you know, there's a very strong correlation between people who suffer various kinds of abuse and adverse experiences at young people who go on to develop addictions in part because they begin to use earlier. And I think one of the greatest losses of people who have been traumatized, particularly as young kids, they don't learn certain kinds of what I would call essential arts of personhood. That's kind of a moral concept, essential arts of personhood. And one of them is to be able to imagine good things. Traumatized people become very good and proficient at imagining all the bad things because, well, maybe they don't have to imagine them. They're already experiencing them. But to imagine good things and to be able to, to hope well, you know, to hope in a realistic kind of way and to be able to have self-trust, those are all things that traumatize people and people, I think, in the worst throes of addiction, oftentimes neither ever fully developed nor or perhaps didn't have those skills in the first place. So any kind of recovery from addiction has to involve there being something positive and good that the person can begin to to look for, to have as a goal, to have as an aspiration. Absolutely. And this is slightly off topic. I'll get into asking you some questions, but I wanted to talk about the idea of strength-based therapy and strength-based coaching in uh, the in the recovery world. And um, I am certified as a ACRA instructor, which is Adolescent Community Reinforcement Approach. And it was actually developed by Dr. Robert Myers in the early 80s, late 70s, a little bit, because he had been through a whole situation with his father being an alcoholic and watching his father die from it. And he's friends with William Miller, who wrote Motivational Interviewing. So a lot of the concepts are Mm -hmm. taken from that book, and they were kind of friends in New Mexico. And uh, I got certified in that in the, oh, I don't know, 13 years ago or something like that. And then I became a trainer um, independently uh, with his permission. And one of the things that really works with the kids, and this is, and I'm sure it works with adults too, but this is the kid version I'm talking about, was really working on a couple of things. Uh, One was trying to find what that kid loves. What makes this kid happy? What is exciting to them? What is their passion? And working our tails off as the therapist, case manager, trying to coordinate with the family, trying to coordinate with the group home if they're in uh, state's care um, to get them into that activity. Because what we saw, and this is what the research demonstrated with Dr. Meyer's research, was if they were in those activities more, they would just use a little bit less substance, right? It wasn't, we were, mm-hmm. we we're not telling them to quit because, and, and part of the program is you don't ever tell the kid to quit. Then the moment you tell the kid to quit, they're going to rebel. We're just trying to say, I want you to be happier and healthier, whatever that means to you, right? Because everyone else is saying quit. The teacher's saying quit. Your parents saying quit. Your probation officer's saying quit. The second thing we really work on is um, dividing up what makes them happy and what makes them sad and what are their traumas. And we do that through activities because a lot of kids don't like (laughs) 
talk. Let's sit down and talk for an hour. That sounds terrible to a teenager. (laughs) Right. So we do it with activities and worksheets and fun and music. And we have little like questionnaires, like rate your happiness level with your parent, rate your happiest level with a boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever, rate your happiness level with activities, hobbies, rate your happiness level with drinking and drugs and alcohol, you know, and all those things. And, and so helping them separate, because a lot of teenagers are stuck in black and white concrete thinking, helping them separate, oh, my happiness is actually much more nuanced. These things are I'm feeling happy about. These things I'm not feeling happy about. How do I get the things I'm not happy about instead of a two out of 10? How do I get that to a five or a six, right? And we start mm-hmm. working in, on goals. And and this is a huge concept. So I'm not giving the whole point away in in, the, in this. You can read about it. The whole manual is online for free. But the la- one of the bigger other concepts we love is trying to engage the family and the community to build this child up, to find out how do we get them away from a dangerous environment? How do we get them feeling good about themselves? Like what you're talking about, how do we get them feeling resilient? How do we feel, help them feel safe? Um, because we're trying to remove the obstacles to, um, cure what they call in medicine, the obstacles to cure, right? If, if every night I'm going home to my parents' house after school and I had a rough day at school because I don't have the cool clothes and I'm from a poor part of town and my parents are screaming at each other, or maybe my par- one of my parents isn't there, or maybe I'm in state custody, I don't feel safe anywhere. So what helps you feel safe? Marijuana, alcohol, opiates, it makes you feel relaxed. It makes you feel okay temporarily. <laughs> and then that's when the addiction starts to take over. And then, as you said, you know, there's a part of you that feels the salvation from drinking because you get relief from your stress or your anxiety or your depression or whatever it be. But then it comes worse when you're when you come down. So those are some things that we found worked, especially with the kids, because they couldn't stand going to AA because it was like another authority figure telling them. Now, adults, I've had a lot of adults love AA. They get a lot out of it. I I worked with an adult once who, you know, once many times who said AA has changed my life. It helped me so much. And they kind of had the nuanced view where it was what I needed at the time. I needed all these men and women to go, dude, don't do what I did. Here's the steps, work the steps, call me at any time. It helped them so much. But at the same time with the young people, it's like, we have to look at what is, what is the reason the young person's drinking? What is the reason the young person's doing drugs? It's not just because and this is the old school kind of maybe labeling, they're an addict. They have addictive genes. They have, um, they're have a bad character. (laughs) All this sort of of crap. Yes. So yeah, we have to look deeper. So anyway, I want to see what you had to say about that. Well, I think people start drinking and using for particular reasons. And, and some of them are, you know, easy proximity opportunity. Okay, yes, that is true for some. But I think it's more true, or it's true for a greater number of people, that people are looking for certain kinds of effects. So if I am someone who feels really insecure in so many kinds of ways, and you know, it's easy to get a hold of some marijuana and I can start smoking and that relieves some of my social anxiety for a while, then that's what I'm gonna incline towards. And I'm gonna continue to look for things. Or you hear people say, I like how I feel when I have these substances. And otherwise, I never feel comfortable in my own skin. Or I I feel like I never fit in. And so those reasons for using are absolutely crucial. So any kind of, 
I'm going to use treatment not in the clinical sense, but but any form of of help or treatment that doesn't get at those underlying reasons, I think, is is bound to fail. And I think it's a very convenient fiction to say, well, you know, there are just some people who are predisposed towards addiction. Or I've heard people say, I was an addict before I took my very first drink. And I think I can't even make sense of that claim or that they see so much of what, what went wrong in their life. Well, I drank because I was an alcoholic. Well, no, you became an alcoholic because you drank. But your point, why were you drinking in the first place? What made that so appealing? And and I think in the best AA with the best people, and what do I mean by that? I mean, people who are genuinely there to help others. And it's true that when you help others, you help yourself. So, you know, there's there's a couple of different things going on there. But I think the power of self-help groups like AA, like Smart Recovery, Rational Recovery, Women for Sobriety, Life Ring, why those work is because people come in and they see others who maybe had it worse than they did. And look at them now. Wait a minute, that guy, I remember that guy. I'd see him passed out somewhere. Or I remember her. She was the one who was always drunk at these things. And wow, now she no longer has this desire to use or to, to engage in certain behaviors that I still have burning right at the center of me. How did, how did they do it? And that's the power of other people. And that, to go back to our earlier conversation, that's why many people say the group becomes my higher power. I kind of hitchhike on that for a good long while until I can begin to develop and identify it for myself or even find it within myself. Maybe it was there all along, but I covered it up or I was ashamed of it or I was afraid of certain things about me or how I wanted to be in the world. But, you know, it's it's liberating to be able to say, this is who I am. And I think one of the greatest gifts of good sobriety is that kind of self-knowledge that we come to know ourselves. We understand why, why we were doing what we were doing, why these seem like good choices at the time. And we know why we don't want to make those same choices anymore. And we see why we want to move our lives in different directions. And that is extraordinarily empowering. So again, to go back to the earlier discussion about where's all the powerlessness, the powerlessness is about, yes, the substances and the behaviors. And there are some very real structural forms of powerlessness. You know, if, if someone is marginalized, is subject to certain kinds of abuses, that that, that powerlessness is, is genuine. But that doesn't mean that a person is completely disempowered and can't in some ways begin to take up more space in their own life. That's exerting a kind of power that is liberating. That's that's life sustaining. Very good points. I was uh, actually just looking at some of my notes here, and you were actually covering some of the key points you make in your book, which I think is going to be very good for people that are, you know, thinking about going into recovery or somebody who who has a family member who is struggling with addiction. Um, I wanted to ask you about some of the other points that you were making in your book. And, um, well, let's do this one for a second. And then I have another one, but 
undertaking spiritual recovery in AA without a religious denomination. That kind of intrigued me. And then, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think if you are someone who is easily at home in Christian faiths, different denominations, then AA as a program is well made for you. And it may well work for a good long time. It may work forever for you. And and I celebrate that. For those of us who, you know, lost a, a Christian faith or never had it or who come from a different faith tradition, how do we make ourselves fit into AA? That's one way to think about it. And sometimes it feels like you got to shoehorn your way in. Or as I said of myself, I felt really dishonest being there. So are there different groups that operate with that broader conception of higher powers that takes God out of the driver's seat and lets each individual person decide for him, her, or themselves sort of what that power can be? How do they want to identify it? And, you know, that's that's what I think sometimes is, is really tough, as, as we talked about earlier. Meetings can be very different. You can go to a meeting that is very kind of traditional, old school. We read the big book. We only read conference-approved literature. This is the program. If you fit into it, great. And if you don't, whereas other groups are, you know, they strike out that God language. They talk just about higher power and say whatever you want it to be. But it, it shouldn't be a matter of luck that you are with groups that, you feel a kind of um, harmony with. I mean, that 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 is one of my sadnesses about AA is that it can be a real struggle for people who don't fit in to find a way to fit in. And I think that's why you have spinoff groups like AA Agnostica, for example, that takes much of the good of the program, particularly about the obligations that we in the program have to each other and centers that rather than this God doing something for you. Yes, I I love that you mentioned that because one of the things you were talking about all these groups and they work really well for some people and depending on the group and which group you find and all of that, like we talked about. But one of the things that we sort of anecdotally say in in the, the therapy world is everything gets worse in isolation. So if you're isolated, anxiety, whatever you're prone to gets worse, addiction. So being around people, whether it's on Zoom or whether it's in person at one of these groups can be a powerful thing if the people in the group are open to that connection. Yes. And that and that connection, keep going. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, that's that whole thing about higher powers are meant to be expansive. They encourage a kind of openness and connection beyond James's expression was beyond our own little embattled selves, right? So to be open to something more, which is that connection that I feel like when I walk into those rooms where someone sees me and gets me, and I don't have to explain certain things about myself where maybe my friends no longer understand me. They say, I don't even recognize you anymore. Or my family says, you know what? You have become you have become a person that we don't recognize anymore. You're too disruptive to our family. I mean, a lot of people say, 
the first time they come into the rooms of AA, they felt like they were home in a kind of way and not to romanticize the notion of home because we all know that's where some of the worst trauma can happen. But there's a sense of having found people like me. These are people who struggle like me. I no longer feel like the outcast. I no longer, I know in AA, one of the expressions is, I no longer feel terminally unique. You know, we all thought, oh, nobody has it as bad as I do, or nobody knows how rotten I am because nobody could be as bad as me. You know, all that kind of, I'm making these gestures with my hands, you know, <laughs> that you just kind of, you shrink down in yourself and your world gets shrunken to be everything that's bad about you. When you're with people who are in some ways leading by example, who are just living their good lives because this is what they're able to do now and they have a kind of joy. Even witnessing that, I would say, might be enough. It's a it's a spark that might ignite that kind of willingness to try to get what that guy over there has or what this person has or, gosh, this person I knew in high school was the biggest jerk in the world. And now I look at them and I think, wow, he's really got something that I want. And that's something that they talk about in AA, you know, in finding a sponsor. You know, look around and see someone who's got something that you want. And, and I think that's in some ways a good recommendation. I mean, particularly in the beginning, because I think oftentimes we come into those rooms and we're, we're utterly defeated. We're, you know, we, we feel like we have no, nothing of worth in us. Like our moral character is deeply flawed. We're failures. We've let so many people down. We can get stuck in that infinite loop of everything that's wrong with me. Other people can help to break that loop by showing us what could be right for us and that what we can make right for ourselves. I love that because in a, just coming from the clinical sense, this is a metaphor, but we find that when people feel down about themselves, then they often make conclusions about what the world is. So it's like, I am worthless. The world is scary and uh, never going to be right. And so we make these vast conclusions, which end up being belief systems, and then we live by them. So yes, yes. alcohol is well, the only reprieve I have from this terrible, stressful place, right? <laughs> yeah. And William James really understood that. He talked about, he said there are about five stages of what he called world sickness or when a person becomes so what, what's the way to put it? They start to be governed by, this is this wonderful concept from one of the mind care writers in the U S in the, in the mid to late 1800s, Horace Fletcher. He talked about fear thought. So forethought is when you're looking forward and you're trying to take things into account, you're being circumspect so you can make a good decision. Yay. Forethought. Fear thought is when fear begins to color everything that you look at in the future. So it's kind of the anticipatory fear that the very anticipatory nature makes it be the case, one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. And so William James takes that fear thought and he talks about the ways that human beings begin to suffer what he calls this world sickness. And some of these levels can be fixed. So the first one is joy chilled. Things that used to bring me great pleasure, eh, kind of lukewarm about them. I don't want to do them anymore. It's like, yeah, I used to play tennis, but eh. And then there's joy destroyed. It's like, like no, I don't enjoy it anymore, but I just really can't stand it. And James says, those are manageable because you can adjust your attitude right now. The issue is 
in you. It's something about your attitude. But the more severe forms of that have to do with the wrongness is out there in the world and you're having to experience it. You're having to experience it. So we said, you know, you got joy chilled, joy destroyed. And then the, the philosophical term is anhedonia. Fancy word, which just means no pleasure. Like nothing is bringing me pleasure anymore. I, I just, I don't like anything. I'm flat. I kind of feel like, oh God, you're walking along in a beautiful day and you you trip on a tree and you blame the tree root. And it's like, why is everything out to get me? And then there's active anguish where, oh my God, my life, my life has no meaning or value. And who am I? And I hate myself and everything is always a source of torment. And the worst is what he calls panic fear. When the world itself is hostile to me, where everything is so bleak, there's no meaning or value in the world. And I'm just here trying to do the best that I can. And William James described himself as having landed at that worst phase of panic fear when he seriously contemplated suicide. And I think that these five stages of world sickness are a great way to understand the trajectory of addiction, what it does to a person in terms of pulling people away from relationships and things that had brought them some pleasure to kind of pushing them away entirely to beginning to really drill down into themselves and then out to the world that it's all just darkness and horror and why bother? And it, 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 it inculcates a kind of resignation and fatalism that's utterly debilitating. Yes, indeed. I'm glad you touched on those. I was, I was wanting to get to that concept uh, because I do think that, uh, and, and this gets into like sort of psychotherapy, but how we view the world can reflect on us or how we view ourselves projects into the world. So if I'm having quote bad day, let's just go with bad day. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, I was late and, uh, you know, my coffee was stale and I don't know, whatever sort of thing you're doing on the, on your commute to work. And then you just see other people and somebody, you know, turns a little bit in front of you and you're like, ah, I'm so mad at them. Right. So then it's just like everything is is wrong. And I start projecting my thoughts onto others, you know, in the grocery store. Well, they're miserable too. Everything sucks. These sort of things that we get, we get in this state of mind. And then there's a rationalization to use. Well, this world sucks. I need 18 Miller lights tonight because how am I supposed to there's there's no nothing for me. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that continues. And then the addiction actually comes in where you crave the alcohol or you crave the drug. And it is your coping skill. It's no longer a relief here and there. So, uh, versus, you know, questioning, and this is hard because our nervous system, the way we feel in our bodies influences our thoughts and vice versa. So if we're in a very stressed, stressful situation, we have to figure out alternative ways of calming the nervous system and alternative ways of getting ourselves out of our thoughts. So, uh, uh, my partner likes to say, whenever someone cuts me off or cuts us off in traffic, she goes, I bet you they have really bad diarrhea and they're just trying to get to the next gas station. Right. So it's kind of this like joke, but it yes. also takes you out of your anger projection. Um, and just going, you know, well, or, or maybe, or her, her other favorite is maybe they're on the way to the hospital to see their child and they're really worried. Okay. You know, that slap right there. Um, yes. and I'm having a quote bad day. But I'm not looking at the context of bad days, right? 
what is a bad day in Europe in 1500s? You know, like what, what is a bad day for somebody? What about a bad day for somebody who lost their, you know, child or, or, or some, or their house burned down? I mean, just turn on the news. There's mm-hmm. lots of people having worse days than me. So right. can I put that in context instead of kind of, you know, swimming in my own muck here, but then all of the swimming in the, anything can be used to rationalize substance abuse or substance use. Uh, Oh my gosh, uh, so-and-so won a game. Let's drink. Uh, oh, uh, so-and-so, uh, got, you know, lost, you know, lost some money due to something. We should drink. Uh, we're going gambling. We should drink. We're going to a concert. We should drink. Uh, we're being forced to go to a school board meeting. We should drink after that. Um, oh, our kids are during it now, yeah. right? Our kids are playing a soccer game here. Put the, put something in your cup. You know, there's all these reasons to drink. And before we know it, we have a habit. So I'm wondering a little bit if you could, you know, give some of your insight on how do people change their relationships with addictive substances and behaviors? Because we can't, you know, I think part of the recovery process is maturing beyond your peers and maturing beyond the culture that you were brought up in or maturing or, or, or recovering from the trauma that that brought you here. But I do think that if we just say all or nothing, um, no. You're never drinking again. You're never doing this again. There's a reaction. So how do we actually realize we have a relationship with the substance or the behavior and and, and start to cultivate a change in that? What are your thoughts on that? I think that's that's a great question. So, you know, I teach at a college and they'll say numbers show and they use some funny language, but about at any one time, about a third of college students will meet the diagnostic criteria that we used to have for alcohol abuse. So that was the DSM-4, not the 5. Now we talked about substance use disorder. And most of those are going to transition, mature out of those kinds of troubling, problematic drinking and using patterns, in part because their environment changes, their situation changes. And so it turns out that once you're in a job that's nine to five, instead of in a situation where I'm going to take all my classes in the afternoon, so you don't have to worry about a hangover, that most people choose to start making and taking different courses of action. And most people will transition out of troubling alcohol and drug use just by being at different phases at their life, realizing certain kinds of limitations, realizing that, oh, these sorts of things, you know, drinking and partying, and I'm a young parent, I can't do that anymore. And so most people will make that choice. But some people progress further down that line where it becomes harder to make that choice so that those alcohol and drug and behaviors become more central to go back to that notion of habitual center of personal energy. Those get harder to undo because they're taking up a bigger role in your life. So the question is, how do you put other activities or other kinds of relationships or other kinds of concerns into your life where drinking no longer seems to be the better thing to do? So your example of working with kids, how do you make them come to see for them that they actually would feel better and have more fun if they did these other activities rather than just, you know, sitting on some ratty couch, you know, smoking a joint and and drinking a lukewarm beer, you know, but people have to come to see that for themselves. And, you know, I certainly know people who have something of a wake up call 
So William James has this expression, misery threshold. Each of us has our own misery threshold. And that's the, the point at which suffering, whether it's being physical or emotional suffering, becomes intolerable. And I don't like it. And I don't want to do that anymore. And a lot of people have a misery threshold that when they get a little bit below it, they're so uncomfortable. They say, well, I don't want to be doing that anymore. And a misery threshold is different from rock bottom. If I could jettison any one concept from our discussions of addiction, it would be the notion of rock bottom. Hate it, hate it, hate it, because it makes it seem as if there's this objective point where if I'm a guy, I've got to lose my pickup truck, my wife and my dog. And if I'm a woman and I'm a mother, I have to be drunk in front of my child. It makes it seem as if that's the point that everyone must hit before they can change. And if someone hasn't hit that point, but they believe they have to hit it in order to change, they're going to keep using until maybe they do hit that kind of point. So I think it's a very dangerous concept. But if instead I think, am I being the kind of person that I want to be? I feel terrible that I'm not being a good parent right now. Or I feel terrible that I can't meet my elderly parents' needs because I'm too hungover. That that discomfort oftentimes is the catalyst. And so each person has to identify their misery threshold on their own. And that threshold can be recalibrated. My misery threshold now as a 57-year-old is very different from what it was when I was a 22-year-old. But that's a kind of self-knowledge. So maybe the short answer to this question that I've been dancing around is it becomes a matter of self-knowledge, knowing who you are and what you want. That's probably one of the most important things to have for the possibility of change. I agree. Yes, absolutely. We've got to start with self-knowledge and what who you want to be and what you envision yourself being versus whatever has happened to you, whatever that created, whatever you are right now. And and being able to imagine a different future or imagining a different self. Another piece of self-knowledge, I think, is self-reflection. And I think one thing that people who are in the active grips of substance use they don't really self-reflect. They think they're self-reflecting because they say, I'm a piece of this or I'm a, I'm a this, yeah. I, I'm doing all this negative. Wallowing, wallowing. is not self-reflecting. Right, right, right. But one of the self-reflection activities we do in the, in the program for the uh, children, for the adolescents, is we very gently ask them, what are the positive short-term results of the using? of using in these places and using this and using this when, and they go, what do you mean you want to know what the positives are? I said, well, it, you wouldn't be using if there wasn't a positive, but I, mm-hmm. but I said, you know, but usually it's short term and what they go, what does that mean? I go, well, it doesn't last forever. You feel great, but then it doesn't last. And then what are the long-term negative consequences? And we go through each different consequence, like uh, what happens with school? What happens with friends? What happens with relationships? What happens with money? What happens with legal? And they go, oh my gosh. And I don't I don't tell them. I ask them. I said, what is it for you? Some people say there are none. I said, okay. But a lot of kids go, geez, well, now everyone's judging me. You know, someone broke up with me because of this. Um, my, I smell because I've been smoking all these cigarettes, you know, and and then I go, okay, well, there's the positive and the negative. And, you know, if you are, are you open to hear, are you open to per, asking permission? Are you open to hear, mm-hmm. uh, working on some ideas of how to get some of these same positive effects from other things? Are you open to that? Yes or no. And if they're not open, I don't push it. And if they are, I go, okay, well, what, what's the, one of the big effects you like? Well, I just love bonding with friends. I love just having a good time and not thinking about our parents and like what's going on with them. And so then we work on getting them in a pro-social activity. Here's the Mm -hmm. fun part about pro-social activities though. 
opposite, short-term negative consequence, long-term positive. Short-term negative is I've got to get on the bus. I've got to remember to get to the, uh, to the um, I don't know, the hip-hop club by five o'clock, you know, the, or the music show or the, or the art group or whatever is in my neighborhood. I have to get there. I have to pay money. I have to be organized. I have to give up time. I could be watching television. I have to do mm-hmm. something that's negative. Yes. It feels like work. And then, oh, then the long-term, oh, I feel great. I don't want to leave. I had so much fun at the group. I had so much fun um, playing the sport. I had so much fun being involved in this music um, club or whatever at school. Um, and then slowly but surely that takes up more time that they could be using. Right. And, and so it's, it's a tough concept to help people learn that we do, we can't, we have to be able to accept some level, some dose of pain or discomfort. Right. But that's a different because we're forcing ourselves into pain and discomfort versus the pain and discomfort that comes from a ton of substance use. And we're feeling great. And all of a sudden we have this terrible discomfort that comes physically or mentally mm-hmm. post use. So that's, a, that's a fun concept. Um, thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. I, I, I think that is right. I mean, there's an expression, you know, there's a reason why we have the expression growing pains. Mm. Yes. And sort of, we grow as people all the time. Our character ourself is never set in stone. It's always dynamic. We're always, um, James talks about, he'd rather not talk about self He'd rather talk about selving. We're constantly, it's always this dynamic. We're changing and we're changing as a consequence of who we're with and what we're doing and what we're hoping for and how we're understanding ourselves. And, you know, I think to go back to one of your earlier points, self-knowledge and self-reflection are more than introspection, just looking inside. Because when we look inside, oftentimes it's like we're looking into funhouse mirrors. We, We don't have any we don't have any corrections. There's no corrective lens. There's there's no way to interrupt our confirmation bias. So a lot of self-knowledge actually comes from being around others and seeing and hearing how others see and understand us, which can be eye-opening. So, you know, a person who is newly in recovery still may have that self-image of I'm 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 the screw up. I'm the guy who lost his wife. I'm the I'm the daughter who wasn't there when her mother was dying. I mean, all these things. Someone else may see, but I see, you know, you are so reliable. You are always the first one here making the coffee. We can always count on you to make sure these doors are open when someone comes. I was like, what? Someone sees me as reliable, but no, I'm the screw up. I've always been the screw up. So those stories we've been telling ourselves for perhaps decades, they get interrupted when we encounter how someone else sees and experiences us. And that's another great gift of those, you know, self and other help, mutual help groups. That's kind of the secret sauce. The secret sauce is in others starting to regard us as trustworthy or regarding us as having something positive, regarding us as being a good, decent person. Because Many of us at some point may have felt that I had no decency left. But wait a minute, if someone else sees something good in me. So this is why I oftentimes talk about people early in sobriety or hitchhikers. We have to hitchhike on other people's understanding of what a higher power might be. We have to hitchhike on how other people see us or what we have to do to try to change our relationship with these substances and behaviors. But at some point, then we start to really to keep mangling metaphors here and analogies. We start driving our own car. 
But at the beginning, maybe we can't so much. But that's not the same as turning everything over to a God who's going to do all the driving for you forever. Just to come full circle on that. That's a perfect segue because I really think you've given a wonderful amount of knowledge here. And I'm really excited for people to hear this and also to read your book. But I want it because this whole book started off with this philosophical, you know, I don't know, confrontation um, with your experience in AA and what you want to see come out of AA and other groups. I wanted to see if you could, if you could uh, sort of touch on this concept, good without God, recognizing the difference between spirituality and religion to kind of help those people that may still be reluctant to get into a group because there's, as we said, there's so many, we can talk about the negatives, but there are so many positives to being exposed to an intimate relationship with somebody who really wants you to succeed and is your cheerleader and, Mm -hmm. and your mentor, or even just a co uh, a peer that's just like, dang it. You know, I can see the good in you. You can't see the good in you and I can't see the good in me, but I can see, you can see the good in me and I can see the good in you. You know, it's so much easier, you know, as we say, it's so much easier to help others than to help yourself sometimes for some people. Um, oh, sure. Yep. It's easier from, from the outsides. But, um, you know, again, this barrier of some AA meetings being almost like religious uh, revivals in, in some towns and in some places. And how do we how do we just not lose mm-hmm. faith in the whole program? just because we had a bad experience at one of these meetings. How do we how do we understand this difference between spirituality and religion, if you could expound on that? Spirituality is unique to each person, and it's a sense of reaching outward to others. You know, so again, something, something bigger. James says anything larger will do if it helps you to take the next step. It could be anything. So spirituality reaches outward into the social world, into the physical world, into nature. One of the examples that James uses of higher and friendly power was from Henry David Thoreau, walking in the mist at Walden Pond and feeling not just a sense of connection, but a sense of communion with the pine needles. He said he felt as if the pine needles were befriending him, that he was part of nature just as much as the pine needles. And spirituality is also something that reaches inward to our own self, you know, to see what there, to see what possibility is there. Ideally, religion should be founded on spiritual experiences. But James always noted that there's a problem when one person's spiritual experiences become the foundation for a religion. Religions can become too wound up in dogma, in doctrine, or in program. And that was my, my worry about AA. Bill Wilson had a very specific spiritual experience that became the foundation for the program Alcoholics Anonymous. And for many people, it seems as if I didn't have one of those big conversion experiences. Maybe I don't belong here. This isn't for me. And and James says, you always have to be careful when that happens, when one person's spiritual experience becomes the foundation for a program, because it's going to preclude or leave out other possibilities for spiritual transformation. So um, it's pretty widely accepted that Bill Wilson single-handedly wrote Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, Dr. Bob looked at stuff after the fact when they felt like, oh my gosh, we better get these guys involved so it doesn't seem like it was a one-man band. But it really was a one-man band. Um, It was Bill Wilson. And one of the 
earliest members of AA that we forget about. His name was Hank Parkhurst. He was the businessman. He wrote that section from the businessman, which you read now and, you know, your hair should stand on end. It's very much a, a product of his time. But Parkhurst advised Bill to remove a lot of that God language because it didn't leave enough room for people to make those discoveries on their own. And so when a program starts to function as a religion in the sense of it's got rules, you know, this is how it works. We do these things. We open meetings this way. We close meetings that way. That that actually is kind of contrary to what William James says should happen. So if Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob regarded William James as a co-founder because they were so um, taken with his work, then I think having that kind of openness to doing things a little differently in AA is totally in spirit with William James as a co-founder of AA. And it would encourage openness and expansiveness and inclusivity as virtues of the program and of the individuals who are trying to be sober within the program and focus less on the, here's the program, you must do the steps in these order, you know, you must have this kind of relationship with God because that then, as James says, religions become like corporations. They become like businesses. They're rules. They're bureaucracies. And no meeting should be driven by personalities. And, you know, AA understands that with its traditions where it's, it's, it's principles. It's not personalities. But that gets blurry. And that's what happens in religions. You, you, you've got the belief systems. But then you've got the people who kind of enliven those belief systems. Yes. And as we know from the group therapy literature and sort of the the organizational literature that's been coming out recently about how taking a bottom-up approach versus a top-down approach actually helps a corporation or a business get better and learn. And in group therapy that the group has to evolve through stages – um, it, it would make sense that an AA group that's going to be very effective would evolve as the members evolve. And while they have the basic principles and beliefs and core values, that they might incorporate some different ideas and different things. So I'm hoping that that maybe your book will influence some of the AA world out there to, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of groups that already are evolving and whatnot, but just to kind yes. of update a little bit of some of the some of the the rough points that that uh, some of the stereotypes that may have emerged from AA about like hitting rock bottom. I mean, that's a concept that's so toxic. I've heard, I forgot to comment mm -hmm. on this, but I've heard families say this, that they maybe haven't even read the big book, but they go, I'm just waiting for them to hit rock bottom. And then they're almost like trying to facilitate them hitting rock bottom. Like, well, maybe if I yell at them enough and take away enough well, of their stuff, it's kind of like really hit rock bottom. Like, it's, it's like a, parents who want their kids to get chicken pox. It's like, well, I'm going to throw you in the room with all the other kids with chicken pox. You're like, Oh, right. Like I'm doing this for your own good. And it's like, I don't, you know, with a lot of damage. It, yeah. Well, it, yeah. Again, it depends on a lot the of damage in the process. Some yep. people don't hit rock bottom and they just, you know, something, things just get worse. And so we have to remember that everyone's journey is different. And that's why we have to be a listener and not a knower. 
And I think that's a tough, and I think if, if you can do that in AA and, and everyone can be a listener and not just a knower, and yes, tell your story, you know what happened to you, but don't know what is right for others. Let don't them... put the shoulds on. Yes. I mean, you. in very, very, very early editions of the big book, they took out the word must, and they took out the word should. So that's why they say these steps are recommendations. So that's what the steps are. But again, it's always individuals who are putting it in. And it may be with the best of intentions. I want you to get sober. So I really think you should do this and you must do this. You know, the, the 90 and 90 that worked for me it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for someone else. So as I've said, I have enormous respect for AA. And I've also seen people who've washed out of AA. So my hope is this book maybe help some people to get to AA, to be able to inhabit it fully and honestly in a way that they don't feel like they're lying. And it's also to say, you don't need AA to be sober. There are different ways to be sober. And William James had a lot to say about it. And so too does Smart Recovery and Life Ring. It's, you keep trying anything that's available if you really want to make a change and hopefully you will find something and make something work for you. I love that. That's a that's a key point, I, I think, to anyone listening who's struggling with um, substance use or somebody who has a family member or a loved one who is struggling is that there are many paths to this person finding their personal way out. Yes. And I think that is definitely the takeaway message. And I think that and, and what that involves is really just not giving up and being open to different possibilities or treatments or books or whatever it might be for some, for somebody, it may be pottery. I don't know. Maybe that's the way they get out of it. Who, it, it, it who's could to be. say? And it could be, you know, like me, I kept saying, oh my God, I'm a failure. You know, I stopped drinking and then I start again and I stop drinking and I start again. And to maybe rethink that, to say that each time I learn something and maybe, you know, that, that time I first got a big chunk of not drinking that it showed me sort of the high watermark. It showed what I was possible of. Okay, so maybe I couldn't stay up there right then and there. But when I started again, I saw that that I could get there. I had done that before. Maybe next time I can do it, even one more day. So all is not lost when someone has a slip or all is not lost when someone has a relapse. There's still much there to build on. Oh, I love that. I couldn't agree more. Um, so yeah, with, honestly, with that note, I think this has been a, a wonderful discussion. Um, yes, I, want... I fully agree. Thank you, Paul. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, and I, I just want to encourage people to check out your work. Uh, you've got multiple books and also your column for psychology today, philosophy stirred, not shaken. Um, and you've, you've, you've done a lot of publishing in your day and, and right now the new book, September 2022 is coming out. It's actually out now. We pushed oh. up the pub date to August 15th. It is okay. now officially out. Yay. So you can get it right now. So you can get it right now on your Kindle. There you go. On your Kindle, wherever fine books are sold on the internet. Highly and friendly, higher and friendly powers, transforming addiction and suffering um, by Dr. Peg O'Connor. Um, yeah, it's been my pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you for having me on your wonderful podcast series. Thanks for all you do for people struggling in all kinds of ways. Thanks. Thank you. And there you have it. 
This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Kraus. If you're enjoying the show, please share with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. If you'd like to, please give us a rating on iTunes. It really helps get out the word about this podcast. If you are looking for an EMDR, International Association Consultant, I can now provide 20 hours needed to become EMDR International Association certified as I am an EMDRIA consultant. I have groups and I have individual sessions, both online and in person. You can check out details by going to my website, counselingsupervisorgr.com or healthforlifegr.com and send me a message. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krause and his guest, and while these are based upon literature they have read and their experience in the fields they are in, these should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255, or you can just dial 988. Did you know that you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order books from the comfort of your own home while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association and other counseling associations are very important to keep quality counseling and therapy services available in the United States. It helps increase education, promotes best practices, and works on legislation to make sure that counselors and therapists can have a living while they're working and helping our communities. So if you're not involved, please join your local association or the National Association's American Counseling Association, Arizona Counselors Association, Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association as an example. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, I recommend EMDR Training Solutions. I'll have a link in the show notes. You can use the code INTENTIONAL at checkout and get $100 off your first training. Until next time, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week.